Welcome to Founders and Friends, the company podcast for Tally Foods, hosted by its founders, Kyle Watts, John Gabizadeh, and Dr. Susan Marie Flugel. Today, we wanted to talk about the Tally Toddler formula with Dr. Susan Marie Flugel, PhD, who's on the podcast today, talking through how we formulated the ingredient deck, the nutritional panel, and how we fortify the protein to make it a complete protein, mimicking dairy to the best of our abilities, being plant-based. I want to talk with John about the vegan probiotic that we use for the probiotic version, and then our use of monk fruit, and then some discussion around taste testing the product and any ideas that we have for improving it that we're kind of working through. So let's start off with the ingredient deck. So we started with organic oat milk powder, and when we reached out to you, Susan, Kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on how you thought that we could fortify the oat milk powder to actually make a complete nutritional profile. I mean, did you draw on the Tally Kids work a lot or did you sort of have to start from scratch on this one? I drew a little on the Tally Kids work. What I mainly wanted to look at is we were using a, we use chickpea with Tally Kids. And with the toddler formula, we were using a pea protein. Yeah. So they do have slightly different nutritional profiles. So what I did first is I went and looked at the pea protein profile and the oat milk protein profile, and they actually are pretty complementary, which is great. We see a lot of the amino acids that are slightly missing in one are present in the other. So you could use those two types of plant proteins. And the oat milk product, even though it's not technically a plant protein, it does contain quite a bit of protein. We could use those together to make a more of a complete protein. Do you, do you like working with the pea protein isolate in terms of, is the, is the protein profile deficient for pea versus chickpea? Pea is actually a little more deficient in several of the amino acids compared to the chickpea protein. Which is interesting because it's so much more popular. Mm-hmm. So chickpea is actually, like I said, by itself, it's considered a complete protein by the World Health Organization. Now with pea protein, we have to, we usually have to supplement just a little bit like with the methionine, for example, to get it up to a complete protein, but that's no problem because you can just add that in and then you'll have a very nutritious protein. Yeah, and we did fortify the protein with methionine and carnitine. Yep, we wanted to make sure that the protein was a complete protein because it's really important for kids Some kids might not be getting other protein sources. You don't know what they've eaten that day. So I think it's really important when you do a product for children in particular that you have a complete protein so they can get all the different amino acids that they need. And the thing about a complete protein is there are certain proteins that your body can't make. And those are really important to get with your food. And so we wanted to make sure that Tally Toddlers had all the amino acids that the kids would need. So as I look at the nutritional panel, I mean, it's fortified pretty completely. I'm going to grab a canister here, but I mean, it has, so our our Tally Kids chickpea milk has 21 vitamins and minerals, and this one has 25, and that's per eight ounces. And it has vitamin A, C, D, E, K, has choline, calcium, iron, phosphorus, iodine, magnesium. And then you included all of the relevant I would assume B vitamins, because I see B1, B2, B3, B6, B9, B12, B7. So, <laughs> you know, how did you decide on, on which B vitamins to include and at what levels? We have the whole complete B complex. I know it might seem silly that the B vitamins, we don't have like, they're not ordered a number, you know, from 1 to 12 or something. There are actually gaps. And the reason there's gaps with the B vitamins is... When they're first being discovered, some of them were not turned out later not to be vitamins. So there are a few things that they call like, oh, yeah. <laughs> B. I always so, wondered that. I was yep. like, why did Susan leave out B4? You know? Yeah, so we didn't leave them out. They actually were uh, discovered later not to be an actual vitamin. They might have been a, usually they were a chemical that was found in the product. But what they did when they first were trying to isolate out the B vitamins is they They grabbed a pile of nutritional stuff, basically, and they started looking through it. And they're like, okay, we found this, this, and this, and this. And they assumed some things were vitamins when actually they might have just been found in a product. 
Are there things that your body makes naturally that we're just there helping the B vitamins? So we don't necessarily need some of this stuff. Also, some of the B vitamins were found not to be vital or they thought there were B vitamins. They actually weren't vitamins because for definition, a vitamin has to be something that you actually need to you know, intake. It's not something that your body makes itself normally. So some of these things were just things that we're already making ourselves. So what I did with the B vitamins is I did a whole complex that we need. And I took that and considered, you know, how much do kids need? Kids don't need as much as adults. You know, we want a certain percentage, but we don't want to overload them on B vitamins either. So we kind of also took that into consideration. Right. Yeah, because I did notice that, and we'll talk about the protein discussion next, but the B vitamins are generally right at 20% now that I look at this. Every single one, you you measured it to 20%, which is yeah. 20% means it's an excellent source, right? Yes. And John and I did that. We, we looked at it and we decided, you know, we want to make sure we have an excellent source, but not too much. Why does everybody, well, first of all, first question about B vitamins, when were they discovered? Is it like a 20th century thing or? Yeah, early 19th century. When they discovered vitamins, first it was A, then it was B. So that's kind of how they got ordered. And the B vitamins were at first assumed to be one vitamin. They realized that there's a compound that was missing. And a lot of the work that was first done was done with um, chickens, actually. They realized that there's a compound that was missing. And they're like, what is this? So they just called it B. And vitamins mean vital. So that's why they got their name in the first place. They're like, something in here is vital for life. Something in here is something that's missing and it took a while before they realized what was going on with B vitamins. We have several uh, B vitamin deficiencies that occurred in this country just because before we realized, hey, it's B vitamins causing these deficiencies, like Plagaria, for example. Plagaria doesn't sound like a nice thing to have. <laughs> it's not a good thing. It, um, it, it caused death. It was very prevalent in southern states where people ate a lot of corn at the time, and corn is deficient. And some of the B vitamins, so you could have a, basically what was happening is they had death followed by, well, it was like you got diarrhea, dementia. It's like the four Ds, what they called it, followed by death. Not a very pleasant way to go. And it took them quite a while before they figured out what exactly was causing this. At first, they thought it was an infectious disease, and non-nutritional deficiency. Right. So these folks were building a, a diet stapled on certain things and they were just completely missing essential vitamins and then they ended up dying. Exactly. Yikes. So vitamins are important. It's not just a, it's not just a cottage industry of supplements. Although you got to be careful with supplements too. I'm sure you have a pretty strong opinion about supplements. I think supplements are fine, but you want to be careful. You don't want to overdose on supplements. Like what do you mean overdose? Just take too many and you just waste? Take too many. And the nice thing is, for example, the B vitamins and vitamin C, those are all water-soluble. That means that whatever your body doesn't use can easily get washed out. So it's really hard to take too many of those vitamins. So they just wash out in the urine, not, not a big deal. The only, the only danger with taking too many B vitamins is if you take one and not the others. So what we sometimes see is people take large doses of especially vitamin B6 or vitamin 12, which seems to be really popular. People love B12. Yeah, they, they will actually outcompete the B vitamins you're getting naturally, so you wouldn't be taking as many of those. And since they all work together, you kind of get an imbalance going on in the system. And that's one reason I really wanted to balance out our B vitamins is so they would all work together optimally without having a problem where you saw them, one, out-competing the others. The weird thing is you can get a vitamin B deficiency by taking too much of one vitamin because it sort of out-competes the other vitamins, and then you can have a problem with that. What's, what are the vitamins that are not water-soluble that explain, explain where you're going with that? The ones you have to be concerned with and kind of watch for are vitamin A and vitamin D in particular, but especially vitamin A. Because vitamin A is, it can become reach toxic levels if you take too much of it over time because it can accumulate. It accumulates like in the fat cells in the liver. And is too much in this regard, like taking a thousand percent daily value? Yeah. Okay. Yes. You don't have to worry about taking a little bit too much. Yeah, you basically yeah. have to be, and by the way, 
the form of the vitamin A matters. If it's straight up vitamin A, it's um, it can you have to worry about it. But if it's in the form of beta carotene, you don't. Mm. So beta carotene, your body will just store until it needs it. Then it breaks in half and makes vitamin A. And it's not toxic in that form. So in this case, a more natural form is actually better. Interesting. And then when it comes to vitamin D, I, I took your advice. You told me once that to get vitamin D, the best way is from the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you told me, you said, you actually need to almost get sunburned to like get the effects. Well, not quite sunburned, but you need to be out there for about 10 or 15 minutes. And usually you're going to see a little bit, it might get a little bit, you know, redder. So what what happens is it forms on the top layer of your skin. Then you don't want to wash your skin until it sinks in. (laughs) That's right. That's what you said. Yeah, you were like, you said like you need to get tan. Like you need to see a visual effect on the skin. You usually will see a slight visual effect. So for... For any time of the year that you can't get tan, you are not actually making vitamin D. Especially for those of us who live in colder climates, like I think all of us sort of do here. If we can go outside and we're wandering around all day and we don't have to worry about sunscreen and we don't get tanner, our bodies are not producing any vitamin D at that time. And so we must take the less efficient route and ingest it via supplement. Yep. And how much less efficient is that on a percentage if 100% is in the sun, what's the percentage? The interesting thing about this is it really depends on the person and how vitamin D deficient you are. Mm. If you're really vitamin D deficient, your body will grab hold of the vitamin D you take. You do lose some of it when it's going through the digestive tract because your body just doesn't convert it all. But they found out that the more you need it, the more you will grab it. So a lot of times with nutrition, we don't have a clear-cut answer because it really depends on how much you need it. If you need it, your body actually tries to make a priority to grab it wherever it can. Our bodies are pretty amazing, I think, actually. Yeah, they really are. Can you get vitamin D from a, a UV tanning bed in the wintertime? You can from some of them, depending on, yeah, if it says UV tanning and if it has the right wavelengths, you will be able to get vitamin D from it. Interesting. Moving through the vitamin panel, I want to talk about milk for a second because I have some other question for you too, which which has been bothering me. But let's talk about milk for a second because this will lead us into the protein discussion of whey, casein, pea protein, fortified pea protein, which is what we have in Tally Toddler. If I were to get milk, dairy milk, straight out of the cow, what vitamins would it have inherently? And then what is it fortified with that people think is already in it, which is fine, but because you don't have to say added vitamin D. It's just like folks buy dairy milk. And I hear a lot from consumers like, oh yeah, but my dairy milk has vitamin D. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure it's added. Yeah, the vitamin D is added. There is a slight amount of natural, but not very, not enough to really make any difference. And it is more, if you get milk from cows that are like out in the sun and that are fed the ideal, you know, raised on grass and that are happy, you're actually going to get a better nutritional profile like anything else. But most of the milk that you get in the store is not raised from happy cows, you know, frog clean in the fields. It's raised from cows that are in larger dairy barns, not seen very much. And you're right, it's fortified with vitamins, including vitamin D. And the reason the government decided to fortify milk with vitamin D was to prevent rickets in children. Interesting. So we're not, it's not natural in milk, no. So what is natural in milk? What is added? I mean... What's natural in milk is the mineral profile, especially. And there are some B vitamins in milk that, like vitamin B12, for example. Those are natural in milk. And the whole calcium, you know, phosphate, magnesium, all of those electrolytes and minerals are natural in milk. And so that's that's one reason why milk has been recommended for children is for the especially for the mineral complex. It's important not only as electrolytes for, for building bones. Right. So building bones is calcium native to milk then, or is it or is that fortified? No, calcium's native to milk. All the minerals are native to milk, basically. So okay. the mineral profile, which we also made sure to have a, a great one to put in in tally toddlers, is 
totally native to milk. And, and that's one reason why it makes a good drink. Yeah, milk, I think, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was thinking about this podcast. And I'm like, okay. So I was reading, I sent John some interesting articles, Susan. And what I learned, like we're always looking at stuff and being curious and uh, using precise fermentation to create casein and to create milk proteins from the lab, it is a noble effort, but it's proven to be prohibitively expensive it is. versus the cost of a dairy cow. And we we want to support our, our dairy farmers to raise their cows in an ethical manner. And so we don't want to ever drive down the animal welfare. But the fact remains that milk is a really cheap source of great nutrition. Like that's a, that's why milk is popular. And and I think getting folks off of milk, I was just thinking about it. I'm like, milk is still the, a very low cost way to achieve a lot of nutrition in a glass, right? Yes, it is actually, especially for kids, because even though milk doesn't naturally have vitamin D, since it's fortified with vitamin D, that's really important with preventing bone disorders. And then also has the other components you need to build strong bones, like the calcium, magnesium, potassium, phosphate. Right. And you look back and you think, okay, you know, as society progressed, when when society was more agricultural, right, in the United States, less urban, you had this animal on your land that could provide for the family. And, And then dairy farming began and then milk spread as a commodity staple. And where I'm going with that is this notion that oh, we can just precise ferment the milk and it's going to cost you 10x, you know, but you're going to buy it because dairy farming is bad. It's like, well, no, not really. Like dairy farm, dairy is like a staple. It's like a low cost, like staple for a lot of families. And you have to respect its value. It has an inherent value to folks because it has so much nutrition and it is just not that expensive. Whereas this new technology really is. And I was just like thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to change anytime soon in terms of... You can certainly uh, pay a little more and get ethically sourced milk or in some places you can even find local milk. Yes, which is the goal, right? If you're going to do that route, like we want to make sure the animals are taken care of. Exactly. But yeah, the precise fermentation, I was just thinking, because the article showed it's like, it's like $13 a kilo to buy bovine-based casein. And it's like a thousand dollars a kilo to do the precise fermentation version of that. I'll tell you something kind of interesting too, is a lot of times when they're fermenting and trying to get small peptides out of milk products, a lot of times what they find is that it doesn't really matter where you cut those peptides. They don't have to be as precise as they try to make it seem. You can have a mixture of all different kinds of peptides and you still see the same types of health benefits from it. So, you know, if they're saying they're spending all this time and money to try to get a very precise product, your body will actually snip and chop those a lot to get what it wants too. So you don't necessarily need that precise product. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. Yeah, precise fermentation is basically isolating the cells, I would just say, that that produce the protein and just cultivating those from a a Petri dish basically and then multiplying them and then you have sort of lab-grown milk. The, the other thing to think about that while you're on this topic is a lot of times when we isolate something from a natural product that's healthy, are we really isolating the same thing and do they need to work in a complex? And this is exactly what we saw with the B vitamins. They work in a complex. They don't work singularly. And I worry that a lot of times you see the same thing going on with some of these nutraceuticals is they want to isolate what they believe is the active ingredient, not realizing that a lot of times when you look at botanicals or you're looking at milk or any product, you're looking at something that's working with a complex to produce health, not one single, you know, compound. Right. Yeah. It's important to have it all work together, which nature does, you know, through the cow. But yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, what customer does precise fermentation milk serve? If it's at a really high cost, and to your point, it might be a bit nutritionally deficient, you're really just going with the animal welfare aspect of things. In that case, you can have a happy cow that's kept with its friends and living in a pasture somewhere, you know, and that's not, and in that case, that's not mistreating the animal at all. You know, it, it probably enjoys being in a nice place where it gets fed and has friends and 
you know, maybe gets a little music played to it like they do in some parts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, you can certainly choose a place like that. I, I know many people who take very good care of their animals. Yeah, yeah. But out in Idaho, there's some good dairy farms up there. The weather is, people need to know, well, not need to know, but I know this because I used to work for a dairy company that there's no dairy farms in the South because the cows sweat out all the milk, which I thought was kind of funny. So there's a lot more dairy farms in colder regions of the country. That's why you get great, great milk production out of Vermont, New York, where John is, Idaho, where you are, there's a lot. Yeah, you actually have to even have different types of breeds of cows in the South because they... Northern breeds like Angus do not do well down there with that heat. Mm-mm. No, they stop their milk production completely. You have to have like the Brahma. There you go. Yeah, and I don't know. They're not known is, for their but... milk production. They're large cows that are originally from India that have like a large hump on their back, and they actually use their skin to disperse heat so they can actually do better in places like Texas and other southern states. That would make sense if they're from India, they could handle the heat. they become acclimated to it. So we talked about the vitamin package of Tally Toddler. It's a great one. It's all, it's all right there on the website. When it comes to the pea protein isolate, we talked about that. John, I wanted to bring you in here and, and have you explain the difference between pea protein isolate versus concentrates versus flour and sort of just help folks understand what isolate means. Yeah, isolate is, is purely like the protein, like at a certain concentration. In this case here, it would be, you know, 88% per hundred weight. When it comes to a concentrate, it, it's below a certain percentage. And that, that in the case would be like a 55% to 70, you know, to upwards to a certain percentage. So it's mixed with more fibers and it's, it's grounds, not purely with, as an isolate. Protein. Then you have the flour, which is just a ground chickpea or pea, right? There's there's no separation of protein of fibers in the case of an isolate or in the case of a concentrate. So certain technology allows for for certain beans to become an isolate. Not not all of them are. You can't just take some sort of a bean and uh, pass it through a machine and isolate it. It works all works differently, right? So. That's that's really what it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. As I understood it as well, the flowers have more off taste too, right? The concentrates have more off flavors because, to John's point, the flowers and concentrates have fibers and shells and husks that might be ground up in there, which creates off taste. Whereas the pea protein or any protein isolate, the way I look at it, the, the protein has been isolated, and like that is what you want because protein and it's natural form is tasteless, right, Susan? It's fairly tasteless. I mean, it's pure protein. Yeah, pure protein is, it doesn't have much of a flavor. It shouldn't have much of a flavor. It's an amino acid chain, right? Like it No, but amino acids do have a s- slight flavors, like some can actually, they actually taste different than others when you, if you taste pure amino acids, yeah. But no, they don't have a flavor like, you know, a bean or a a steak or anything else when you're getting with a protein potter. Also, it is important to note that when, when a certain bean or, or product is becoming an isolate or even a concentrate, uh, it undergoes removal of anti, anti-nutritionals like saponins, tannins. And that's very important because if you have the raw bean as a flower or by itself, it's safe to consume. But when you're isolating the protein, there's a lot of danger that comes with uh, with that, so they have to remove a lot of junk in that protein. Otherwise, it's it's dangerous because it's at a higher concentration per per weight. Mm, good point. I don't really understand that. John can jump in here anytime, but what he's saying is that as you isolate and you you know you're getting a smaller amount when you're isolating that protein, those anti nutrients will compose a larger part percentage of your product. Is that what you're going with with this, John? Correct. Correct. So you're going to get them, them concentrated as well. So it's really important to remove them because anti-nutrients, just like the name, can hinder your ability to obtain other nutrients from the product. Some of them can actually act directly to prevent the use of protein or amino acids from the product. And so if you get enough of them, they can actually decrease like growth rate in animals and in children or in people both. They can cause stomach upset. 
because they can irritate the lining of your intestinal tract and other problems like that. Or you might just not getting nutrients and calories from the food because a lot of them are just getting swept out. Gotcha. Interesting. Every, every protein has that soy, right? So, soy, if you don't remove the anti-nutrients and you feed that to, to livestock, really could kill them. Yes, you can. You can kill little pigs by feeding them straight soy or raw soybeans. And with a lot of livestock, they actually have a chart when you're formulating livestock feed that tells you exactly how much, especially with soybeans. Soybeans are particularly bad. Especially with soybeans and anti-nutrients because it has a chart telling you this is how much you can give to each of these animals, different livestock, and whether or not you're going to use them as breeding stock or as food animals or how, what age they're at. For example, young piglets are really susceptible. They can die from eating soybean as young piglets. It, it irritates their intestinal lining and just causes the cells to sloth off. It's just not very good. Right. And that makes sense. As you condense the, the protein through that process, you also condense all of the anti-nutrients, which I just learned was a thing, and you got to <laughs> get rid of those. That's what a protein isolate is. And to bring it back to Tally Toddler, we use pea protein isolate because... It's widely available, it's widely accepted, and it's widely digested, right? So Susan isn't pea protein. We've talked about this being a, a gentle protein on, on stomachs. Yeah, pea protein is a gentle protein on, on stomachs. Yeah, so the number one ingredient in our product is organic oat milk powder, and we chose that for the great taste that it provides from the oat milk. And then our second ingredient is organic pea protein isolate. We chose pea because it's available, it's widely accepted, and it's easy to digest. We use an organic pea starch as the third ingredient. John, do you want to explain organic pea starch? The way we're going to post this to Instagram, but the way I described it was it's, it's kind of a binder. It kind of is the fabric that brings everything together. It's a medium, if you will, right? Yeah. Pea starch is a clean label ingredient. It comes from from the pea, it's the isolated starch. And that starch is a great source of carbohydrates that we need for the toddler. A toddler needs good carbohydrates. So that's a good source rather than using any other junk or competitor uses. And it's white. It works well in the solution. It dissolves. It's soluble 100%. And it works well with binding, like you said, right? If you add that to the to the water, it, it holds uh, together the the, the, the powders, in, you know, in, in, for, for a little bit. That's the third ingredient, organic pea starch. The next one is our organic guar fiber, which I have come to be a personal fan of from your recommendation, John, because we actually use guar fiber, not organic, but we use organic in this toddler formula, but we use guar and tally kids milk. I buy it now personally. I buy the Sun Fiber brand. It's great. It's fantastic. You can put it... Like So guar fiber, I recommend you go to Amazon, listener, and buy it. <laughs> Seriously, it's kind of expensive. It's like 30 bucks for a tub, but it's 100% water-soluble and it's tasteless. And it provides... And it works like a charm. It works like a charm. It really provides great digestive support if you're looking for that. I just can't believe how it's tasteless and water-soluble. I, I, I would say most people don't understand... understand uh, the benefits and they won't look for it. We, like Kyle said, definitely try it and you'll see a difference in your day-to-day -day bowel movements. It's just great. Uh, it doesn't upset your stomach like most fibers that are marketed on the, in the world. Those are high in, in junk like corn, oligosaccharides and, and, and stuff like that, which is really harsh on the stomach. It really, really hurts it a little bit. And in this case here, it doesn't. Yeah, the, the brand is Sun Fiber. And I think we actually use that same supplier. Or we do, I believe. Yeah, you can literally buy this on Amazon from them, Sun Fiber. So that's just, you can like see. And we we're doing an Instagram series coming up here where our photographer, I sent him, I had John send him all of our ingredients in this product so he can like do some fun videos and just show you the ingredient. And then I wrote the caption to those posts. So like I'm just explaining like what it is. My point with all that is just that we don't use any ingredient that we're ashamed of and we don't use any ingredients that we can't explain and we don't use any ingredients that we can't just show you. Like I can show you the organic oat milk powder, which I, I will on, on Instagram. I'm going to show you guys the pea protein isolate. You're going to see exactly what it looks like. The pea starch, you'll see that. The guar fiber, you'll see that. You can buy it online. And then the next thing you're going to see is the powdered oils. And this is what I was going to say earlier, Susan, that I wanted to bring up with you. 
So I posted a video to Instagram like back in April or whatever and had to take it down because I was just getting roasted to like high heaven. And what I was saying in the video, it was up for like a day or two. I was like, this isn't going well. Was that canola oil is actually a, pr- a pretty decent oil and that high oleic sunflower and safflower oil, which is what we use. We don't use canola. But I want to start there. So our next two ingredients are our last two, which is organic high oleic safflower oil and organic high oleic sunflower oil. They're powdered and mixed together. That rounds out our ingredients. We have a very clean label with, I think it's like six ingredients. So Susan, set the record straight. Is canola oil bad for you? Because a lot of people seem to think it's garbage. A lot of people do not like canola oil. It's been mixed. There's mixed research about it, basically. There's there's some compounds in it that give people pause. For me, myself, I probably... And the problem is, too, though, you have different types of canola oil. You also have a high oleic canola oil, which is not going to have the same profile as a low oleic canola oil. So, it, yeah, they're, they're, people have very strong opinions on the canola oil. Personally, I probably wouldn't put it in a product. I would use the sunflower oil or sapphire oil instead. In fact, I get sunflower oil mayonnaise because that's my preference. If you want to hear a little more about why people don't like canola oil, a lot of it's due to the processing technique. That's what I was going to mention. So the processing technique for both canola and soy oil a lot of times uses hexene. And hexene is a neurotoxin. So a lot of times when people are upset with the oil, it's less the inherent qualities of the oil and the fact that most canola oil that you buy is processed using hexene. And they found that products with both soybean oil and canola oil in it use this method of processing. And a lot of soy, by the way. So hexene, I don't know if you if you guys know a lot. John might probably knows a lot about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, John probably knows a lot about it. But basically, it's, it's used to separate out proteins from oils. And so they found recently that you can see there's some of this left over in some of the products that they use when they're separating out the oils from the fats. And so you can become exposed to hexene, as well as it it can become an environmental contaminant in the products that are using this. We used to use it in the lab to do DNA analysis because it extracts the DNA from the the protein of your sample. And when we got in the lab, it was considered such a toxic substance that one time I got mailed some hexene, a little teeny bottle. It was in this giant package. And then I opened it and it had like safety wrapping. Well, first it had like hazard wrapping and everything all over on it, which was really entertaining. And then I opened it up and then there was like a metal canister. And then I opened it up and then there is another protective packaging. And I ended up like with five different types of protective packaging before I got to this little teeny bottle right in the middle. And that was like only open under your hood. And in recent years, they've actually gone to using different techniques for doing DNA extraction because they've decided that they don't want people in labs exposed to hexene. Like I said, it could be a neurotoxin and affect your nerves. It's like mercury or something, right? Where if you... Yeah, it's very... Kills you. It's very toxic. Well, basically, what this is is a, 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 a nerve toxin. It affects you the same way an overdose of insecticides would on humans. You, you, mean, you might start getting you know trembles. It's going to affect how your nerves process information from your brain all over your body. Ugh. Yeah. Why would hexene be used to refine canola oil if it's so toxic? Because it's fast and easy, you know? (laughs) That's sad. Yeah. How's that legal? There's so much regulation that we jump through just to make a nice, beautiful, cute little product. And (laughs) they're over there using hexene. Yeah. That's why I don't use any commercial oils. I mean, I look for a cold pressed where they're actually just pressing the oil out. Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Cold press, expeller press is the best way to extract, to refine oils from plants. And I, I know that's the only types of oils that John also is, you know, always recommending. He he goes for the all natural, cold pressed, no toxic chemicals used to process, good for you and the environment. Yeah, and cold pressed is exactly how it sounds. They use a cold press, very, very heavy, a lot of tonnage. To basically press down the sunflowers and extract the oil versus mixing the sunflowers in with a chemical that extracts the pure sunflower oil or whatever oil that you're going for. Olive oil, same thing. Right. The other important thing with cold press is by keeping the temperature low, you don't get 
free radicals in your product. Exactly. So whenever oils are heated, you start developing free radicals, which can be dangerous and cause inflammation, not only in the oil, but in the people who consume the oil, and that can cause damage within your body. So when we keep the oils cold like that, you keep those low, and that's really important for health reasons. And then to wrap it up on the oils piece, that's what provides the fats for the product. And you want to provide high oleic oils because of... Oh, did you want to want to talk, talk about the difference between high oleic, low, and medium oleic oils? Yeah, because this is just such a critical point that, you know, if you look at our label, we say high oleic sunflower oil and high oleic safflower. The high oleic matters, so go ahead. The high oleic matters a lot. So a lot of people are concerned. I know we've had questions about using sunflower oil in particular. There are three different types of sunflower oil. You have high oleic, medium oleic, and low oleic. Low oleic was the original type of sunflower oil. So low oleic oil is high in omega-6 fatty acids. And that is the main type of fatty acid in those. And there's concern that you want to balance out your types of fatty acids. You want to have a balance of the omega-3s and the omega-6s. And so low oleic sunflower oil has more omega-6 fatty acids, which can, when in balance, contribute to inflammation. It doesn't when it's balanced, but when it's in balance, it can. Now, the type of oil that we use, however, is the high oleic. High oleic might as well be like a different type of oil. Its profile is very similar to that of olive oil. So it is high in monounsaturated fatty acids, the same kind of fatty acids that people are like, you know, I'm using olive oil because it's healthy for me, high in these healthy fatty acids. That is the type of sunflower and sapphire oil that we're using, really high in those. So when you're looking at it, you have a lot of oleic acid, which is what you see in olive oil, which is the healthy, low inflammatory and actually prevents inflammation in the body. And that's what you want to see because that kind of helps balance out the other fatty acids. Exactly right. Obviously, coming from you, the expert, <laughs> you are right. I just listen to whatever you say. So <laughs> that's that's the benefit. And that is interesting about the olive oil comparison. Uh, I have. Yeah. If you look at a chart, you will see that the high oleic oils that we use are very similar to olive oil with those monounsaturated fatty acids that are so healthy. Now, let's compare and contrast the fat source coming from sunflower and safflower oil, plant oils, going to make a plant-based product, versus the fat source coming from dairy milk. What would you say are the nutritional differences there in terms of fat? This is really interesting. Did you know that dairy is actually high in oleic acid, just like a high oleic? No. <laughs> it is. And that is one of the reasons that, that one of the things that makes dairy healthy is that it has a high concentration of a monounsaturated fats. Interesting. Weirdly enough, just like dairy products, our product also has the same types of fats that are known to be low inflammatory fats. And, oh, and here's another interesting thing. The oleic acid also contributes to your immune system. So they're finding there's really big benefits to helping boost immunity with consuming Natural foods are high in oleic acid. And dairy milk is high in linoleic acid or it's high in, it's just high in oleic acid? It has oleic acid. It has um, saturated fats. So dairy milk would have more saturated fats than our product. Okay. Saturated fats are solid at room temperature? Exactly. So saturated fat is one that's solid at room temperature. Saturated fats used to be villainized quite a lot. But now we're finding out you can't throw fats into this one group, saturated, unsaturated, you know, monounsaturated. You actually have to look at the fat. Um, the other thing that dairy fats have a lot of is they do have what they, they have natural trans fats, not the bad type. And some of those also have health benefits. So dairy fats have kind of like a mix of different fats, many of which have been found to be anti-inflammatory, same as the fats that we're using. One of the things that I've learned recently, which I find really interesting, they've been doing, you know, there's always been a lot of debate about dairy, whether it causes inflammation, whether it doesn't cause inflammation. I'm sure you guys probably have read some of this debate. People are quite heated on it. What new research has found out, and this makes total sense to me, is if you are allergic to dairy, it will cause inflammation in your body. If you're not allergic to dairy, it's totally anti-inflammatory. So just like anything else... <laughs> If you're allergic to a product, 
you know, don't consume it. If you aren't allergic, it's actually fine. The problem is identifying food allergies is notoriously difficult. Exactly. And that's one thing like with Tally Toddler and Tally Kids that I really like is you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to wonder, I wonder if my kid's allergic to milk because a lot of kids are. You know, I wonder if my kid's allergic to soy. I wonder if my kid's allergic to peanuts. None of this matters because the nice thing about our products is they totally cover all of that. If your kid's allergic to sesame, you don't have to worry. Um, it's not in the product. And you can feed it to other kids, too. You don't have to be worried like, gee, I wonder if this other little toddler that came over might be sensitive to one of these common allergens. Right. And I think that that's the, the benefit of our product. And I think that the negative, perceived negative of our product is how can you provide complete nutrition that's plant-based, that's not dairy? I've heard folks say like, oh, yeah, I would drink oat milk for myself, but... I don't know if I'm comfortable feeding my child an oat milk based product because it's, you know, and I don't knock them at all for thinking this way because it's, it's totally like safe to be like dairy is an extremely nutritious product. It is. So I'm not going to say it isn't, but like, how would you compare our product versus a dairy toddler formula? Cause infant formula is different. We can talk about that maybe next, but how would you compare tally toddler honestly versus a dairy toddler formula? Are we deficient in some regards? Are we the same? The cool thing that we did with Tally Toddler is we tried to make it very comparable to dairy product. Now, one serving of our product is the equivalent to like a half a cup of milk as far as nutritional, uh, as far as minerals go. So with minerals, we're like going, okay, you don't have to worry about your kid being deficient in minerals because we're going to make sure that we have a fairly large amount of calcium, potassium, phosphate in our product, the magnesium, just like you would find in dairy milk. Now with protein, we did like a one-on-one. So you got a, a cup of milk, a couple of our product has a, in fact, our product might have just a teeny bit more than some milk. It has the same amount of protein and we made sure to balance the protein so that kids would be getting the same amount of a complete protein that they would get if they drank the equivalent amount of milk. Yep. Nine grams in tally toddler. So we're, Where's the hang up here then, you know, if someone says to me, I just can't do an oat-based toddler formula. Again, toddler formula is age one and up. This is is not an infant formula. Infant formula is completely different. Yes. And we'll talk about that next. But toddler formula, there's a few out there. Toddler formula is basically a a drink for kids age one and up that's very nutritious. But it's not infant formula. So does ours fall short in any way or... The cool thing about the formula, and I know John really insisted on this and Kyle, and I thought this was great, is they're like, we want a formula that's nutritionally adequate. We just don't want like a good tasting, sweet kind of formula. We want something that, you know, parents can give their kids that they know they don't have to worry like this is going to be taken away from their time drinking milk. Our formula is, like I said, it has a protein, it has minerals. And it also is high in like the B vitamins. In fact, you get a much more complete B vitamin complex than you would in milk. We have a lot of added vitamins and minerals, so you don't have to worry about your toddler being deficient in any of those when they're drinking drinking the product. The other thing we tried to do is we wanted to make a product that would be able to compete head-to-head with milk. I think looking around at both, both of you guys, I mean, that was our goal, right? It's, we want a product that parents can give to their kids and not worry about being giving them something that that's not nutritionally adequate. Yeah, that's that's how John designed the product in terms of the fat content being 15% of daily value, the protein being 9 grams, you know, all of that, the carbohydrates matching milk and then just tons of vitamins and minerals that actually exceed the value of milk. A lot of these toddler formulas what they fall short on is, you know, they they have a lot less protein and And this is one of the concerns, like the FDA has a lot of concerns about toddler formulas, that toddlers might be drinking these and not getting the nutrients they need. And so we kind of wanted to address these concerns up front and make sure that we had a product that would meet toddlers' needs and could also, like I said, compare to milk, which is the one that a lot of times the USDA and FDA is worried about that. Kids will drink these toddler formulas. They're not drinking milk. They might be low on nutrition. Correct. So you won't have to worry about that with tally toddlers. I'm looking at a brand right now of a grass-fed whole milk toddler formula made with real 
real milk powder. The nutritionals are just horrendous. Let's go through them, John. So what's their fat? If you, if you look equally to what we have, 36 grams, their fat is 10 grams. Saturated fat is 5 grams. Their, their carbohydrates is 18 equal to ours. Here's where it gets really bad. Sugars is 16 grams and 12 grams of added sugar. And on a protein basis, it's only 4 grams. I mean, 4 grams, we're, we're looking at 9 grams. So we're double the protein. We're at 1 gram of added sugar. We're there at 12 grams. And we're at two grams added. We're at two grams sugar total. Correct. We're at two grams sugar total. We're there at sixteen grams. We're at three grams of fiber. We're there at two grams. And you know, fat wise, we're 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 in a better spot. Where we have, you know, they're talking five grams of saturated fat. In our case, we have 0.5 grams of saturated fat. So we're just better all around. Right. But then the question becomes. What's nice about dairy formulas, as you've educated me, John, as I went to the store and purchased them, is they're fully water-soluble. And, and they have a more of a sifting, sandy texture. So if you grab like a, any dairy formula, you'll see that. And if you grab ours, you'll see it's like plant-based, you know? So it has a nice, fine texture, but it's, it's not fully water-soluble. I'm, I'm just calling out the differences in like drinkability, <laughs> you know? And then obviously if you pound it with sugar, like it's more drinkable too. And I've, I've been talking to you guys recently about we should add a sugar to ours, but I'm happy to go with the flow. So uh, as far as, as far as the solubility, you know, now we're, we're talking about 10 years in market where people have protein powders, right? In, in, for shakes, none of that is soluble, you know, but you put it in a blender and it blends. So right. I think it's widely acceptable that it's not soluble. It's not something that you can, unless you start playing with the pH and you adjust that, then you can make it soluble, right? Pea protein at like a pH of like four, for example, becomes soluble, right? We're at a neutral pH because you want it to taste bland. If you lower the pH, now you're sour. But there comes things with that. But again, I think the whole market understands when you use plant-based, it, it, it may not work as, as, as real dairy. It's a different experience. I think that's what people need to understand is when you're doing a plant-based protein, you're, it's going to taste different. It's going to have a slightly different feel on your mouth. But and I think that's okay with people that are choosing to use plant-based products. We're, we're not trying to say like, okay, everybody wants to be and taste and look exactly like milk. It's a different product. Right. We just want to say ours is nutritionally comparable to milk-based products. Yeah, and to John's point, I mean, you look at any dairy products, none of them have two grams of sugar. We should add some more sugar to this. No, I mean, we should add like one gram more. That'd be increasing at 50%. I'm just curious if it would... <laughs> here's, my, here's my thing with the sugar. Here's my thing with the sugar. If two to three... If going from two grams to three grams doubles the sweetness, but only, I only have to add one gram extra sugar and I go from two to three. That's what's the fantasy in my head that I'm thinking. Cause I, I feel like ours is, ours is pretty good. Like I've tasted it multiple times, but it's not very sweet. And I, I wonder if on a child's palate, if it'll be, we'll see. We have consumers with the product right now who are going to get back to us. Yeah. I think we need to see, but Kyle, I was going to say, I was looking into that because you got me curious. So I started looking into marketing and children's taste preferences and, what happened. And one thing that's really interesting that we might want to, you know, discuss on the website or whatever is children develop their preference for sweet or overly sweet at a very young age, like toddler formula. And they found that what the parent is feeding them at that time can actually determine their lifelong preferences for food. Wow. So if children are given overly sweet stuff at the toddler stage, they're going to keep that preference throughout life a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting and something that we might use to talk to when parents are thinking, you know, what what kind of product should I give my kid to? When they want to give them something that's too sweet. That's brilliant. Very interesting work is, you know, with that. Well, folks that know you, might you call it epigenetics? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, what, that's an example of epigenetics, right? Where your environment changes your genes. If I'm a parent, and also you're thinking if I'm a parent, which... What's best for my kid? They also found that toddler formulas such as milk that at the higher protein levels tended to later on when they're looking like two to four year olds, the toddlers that were drinking a slightly the higher protein toddler formulas did not gain weight. Well, they gained weight like in a normal matter. They weren't overweight, I should say. So 
overly sweet or the lower protein toddler drinks actually were correlated with unnecessary weight gain in, you know, preschool kids. And as they got older, they saw that weight gain still continued. So it can kind of lead them down a path to have health problems. And a couple of papers were like you were talking about, they were talking about the ethical about this should be, and that's one reason the government is trying to go away from added sugars in toddler drinks. And they're starting with little kids and they're working up. It's because they've looked at this research and they're like going, you know, is this ethical to give kids overly sweet stuff? Yeah, we know they like a little overly sweet stuff, but should we be giving it to them and having them develop their taste buds prefer this if it's going to set them up for a lifetime of health problems in the future? Well said. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, well said is right. So we're going to wrap it up pretty soon here, but I do want to close the loop on toddler formula versus infant formula. And before I go to infant formula, I've been looking around at various toddler and infant formulas. And I want to bring it all all the way back to breast milk. So we've talked about cow's milk, how Tally Toddler is replicating cow's milk nutritionally. We've talked about how cow's milk is naturally high in high oleic acids. We use high oleic acid oils as well. I think it's like 25% is what most cow milk has somewhere around there in oleic acid. And so that's the cow's milk. But in terms of like breast milk, what's the major benefit of breast milk or the differences nutritionally of breast milk versus cow's milk? Breast milk actually is lower in protein, but higher in, in some of the more specialized fats that we'd have to look into. And so then infant formula is regulated by the FDA, and that is zero to 12 months of age that you can drink infant formula. And the reason it's regulated is because it's designed to be the only thing that that child intakes and can still thrive, similar to how they would be just in intaking breast milk. And so how does our toddler formula compare to infant formula? Would we have to really ramp it up substantially to do an infant formula that's plant-based to match breast milk? Yeah, we'd ha- you'd have to definitely look at it. So they they do have uh, specialized formulas that are plant-based for toddlers. But the thing with comparing it to breast milk is, you know, that's like the gold standard for baby's nutrition. And so we'd have to be really careful to try to get something that replicated it fairly closely, especially with looking at, for example, amino acid profile would have to be different. You would have to add in some of the amino acids that are not found in high enough concentrations in most plant proteins to replicate the infant formula. So babies have a higher needs for some of the amino acids than even toddlers do. Right. And they have to survive on just that formula. So it's regulated by the FDA. There are currently, I don't know that there's any plant-based infant formula, John, on the market, right? There is, yeah. Well, there is. There is one in Australia called Spreader Organic. Yeah. Because because of regulations, they drop ship it to the U.S. So that's available. You also have soy infant formula that's plant based. Susan, is that right? There are some. Yeah, there's there's soy infant formulas that are plant based because um, and those were some of the first ones for children because there are some babies who are allergic to milk. I had a friend who actually had this when she was a kid. She they found and sometimes it's hard to to diagnose them as being allergic and they can be allergic to their own mom's milk. So they, yeah, they've had soy infant formulas for a while. And in fact, those are the most of the ones that until recently have been approved with soy. And so, but now they're actually realizing that other plant proteins could be used for infant formulas. Yeah, and that's where we are going to go next. We need to find an FDA advisor to see if we can start producing, going down the steps to produce an infant formula to supplement our toddler formula. Our factory that we use is, is willing to, to become certified for infant. And because of the shortage that happened a couple of years ago, uh, the FDA has a temporary rule in place to sort of fast track new infant formulas to market. But they really only fast track you if you are like matching or replicating an existing approved infant formula. Yep. So like if you were to be a new Joe Schmo sh- supplier of dairy-based infant formula, you would get fast-tracked and they would just say, hey, match this current formula. But for our business, I don't know that we'll ever launch a dairy-based infant formula. It's not out of the cards. Or we could do a goat milk because that's approved and that would be non-dairy, which would fit with what we're up to here. Yep. But launching a fully new 
I think it would be... Well, what you have to do, too, is they, they will... A lot of times, if it's a new protein source, right. those have to be tested to make sure that the amino acid profile is adequate for infant growth and development. Exactly. Which makes sense because no one wants a baby to be malnourished or, you know, something else happen because it doesn't get adequate nutrition. Right. And currently there's no U.S. supplied, correct me if I'm wrong, John, you brought up an Australian example and a European, I think, example. I don't know if there's a a U.S.-based soy infant formula. There could be. I just maybe have missed it. Yeah, yeah, there there is. By the big, big uh, producers... And make a soy base, which is interesting that you would choose soy because we've we've pretty much all agreed that it's not as good as pea, right? The reason that they chose soy is not because it because of its amino acid profile. Soy actually is a lot worse than a lot of other legumes in terms of its anti nutrient properties and the compounds it has in it. But it has an extremely good amino acid profile that can hold its own with a lot of, you know, it's just below like milk and meat and some of the other plant-based amino acid profiles. So that's why they chose soy. So it's fairly complete. It's fairly complete. So it was an easy one to use. You don't have to add as much stuff to it. And organic soy is a little bit more readily available, especially domestically. Because if we were to go to make an infant formula with chickpea, we didn't use chickpea for the toddler because... John couldn't find it. It's just not a readily available right. organic crop. And we wanted this product to be organic. So we ended up going with organic oat milk, which is interesting too, which I'm actually really impressed by our organic oat milk supplier that you found, John. And again, it's it's a organic oat milk powder, which just means that they, they take the oats and they basically put them through this gentle water process, which I thought was pretty cool, where when you make oat milk, it goes through a really harsh enzymatic process to make it, I guess, taste better. I'm not actually sure why they do that process, but through that enzymatic process, it turns the oat, like if you drink any oat milk brand, you're drinking a simple carbohydrate. So oats in natural form are complex, which means that they're slow burning, right? Which means that they won't spike your blood sugar, spike your insulin like straight sugar will, or a can of Coca-Cola will. But what happens when you make oat milk they are enzymatically processed and they do become a simple carb. But what I learned from the supplier that John found, I was emailing him and saying, tell me more about this oat milk powder. And he was saying, well, ours is actually much more complex. It's a little bit less complex than straight oats, but it's far more complex as a carbohydrate than an enzymatically processed oat milk. So all that to say that this gentle water processing method that they use is called like the low sugar version of their product, and that's what we use, and that's why our low, that's why our sugars are so low, is because our oats are processed really slowly through water over a longer period of time, not the quick enzymatic way, and so we don't spike the insulin levels, and we have a much lower sugar profile in our oats. They're much more like natural oats than they are easy oats, I would call them. Right, John? Yep, hundred percent. All right, I think we've covered yeah. most topics. Go ahead, Susan. I was just going to say, I think an important thing, which we've kind of touched on, but I just wanted to mention is the low sugar. Yeah. That is one thing that John in particular has spearheaded throughout this whole project. And I think this is a really important thing, particularly as we know now that giving children too much sugar early in life can just set them on a, you know, a bad road to health problems later, is that making sure that products contain more complex carbohydrates and products have less added sugar is really important for kids' health. 100%. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel really I feel really strongly about this too. The other thing is when kids are given products that are low in sugar from the very beginning, they don't develop that sweet tooth. And I can tell you that from personal experience. My, my parents homesteaded and I did not get processed <laughs> food at all. I was raised on raw goat milk and my mom raised stuff and actually I'm still in Alaska. So we had, we had a very diet, but. Wow. You were raised in Alaska? On a, on I was a... raised in Fairbanks, Alaska. What? Oh, wow. That's way up there. The cold part of Alaska, not the hot part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many years were you there? Until I was a teenager. Wow. So. And then my mom moved back later when I was in college and lived there for a few more years. So I was there for a couple more years when I came back home. Interesting. So yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And so I was raised without having a lot of sweets at all. 
And I still don't have a sweet tooth, you know, and I don't really miss it. So that's what I was telling you before that when you have me taste things and ask how sweet they are, my my <laughs> thing of what's sweet might be a little skewed towards compared to, you know, your other, other people. But raising a kid without that type of sweets in their life, you will, you will actually develop a, a more appreciation for natural sweetness and products, and you won't need that artificial sweetness at all. That is interesting because I was raised, my mom was not like a health nut by any means, but we did not have candy in our house. That was just not what happened. We had like Nutrigrain bars. I still hate Nutrigrain bars. <laughs> They're really good for you. Or like Fig Newton bars you would buy. Like, I have to admit, not liking brewer's yeast, which we also did. <laughs> but now that you mention it, I have I have zero sweet tooth. I'm, yep. I'm bad and else. Like, I really love salty stuff, but like I have no sweet tooth. And, and the other is my sister, now that you mention it. I wonder if that did contribute yeah, to that. Yeah, so, so think about that. And out of my brothers and out of my siblings, most of them have no sweet tooth. Oh. I mean, my one brother won't even eat fruit because he thinks it's too sweet. Wow. Because we didn't get a lot of fruit in Fairbanks, Alaska at that time uh, either, so especially in middle of winter. This is a great marketing point for us to really address what we've, you know, what whatever you said is great to educate the mother or the father. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, we're in, it's intentionally low sugar and it does help lead to a, a positive path. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was, I was thinking, you know, to sort of encourage to parents to consider, you know, when you're feeding kids, what kind of path do you want them to go with? And, and a lot of little kids can adjust pretty easily to different levels of sweetness in their diet at that age. The last two things that, well, one that's in both products is the monk fruit. More and more I read about monk fruit, the more and more confident I am in its long-term outlook for being a great part of your diet. We use yeah. monk fruit for a little bit of sweetness so we don't have to add sugar. It's um, anti-diabetic. You know, yeah. they've, they found it has a lot of health benefits when you consume monk fruit. Yeah, basically just is a magricide that provides sweetness on the tongue, but it, it's not processed by the body. And yeah, I was just reading a lot about it lately and a lot more and more studies are coming out that not only is it, first of all, it's of course, it's generally rec- recognized as safe, but not only is it safe, it's not even really like, on the red zone of maybe it's not safe. It's like actually more on the other side of like having some serious positive properties. Yeah. Yeah. I've been impressed with it too, actually. And then uh, John, the vegan probiotic that we source for the probiotic version carries in it like a colony of bacteria. That's like 500 million, you know, CFU per serving or colonizing fortifying units or however they name that. But that's an interesting probiotic that I was reading their informational pamphlet the other day. And it's basically a probiotic that is like a picture, like a seed. So it shakes up in the formula nicely as like a dry seed and it's heat activated. So when it hits the microbiome is when it actually releases the, the probiotic from the heat. Exactly. That's exactly how it, how it, how it activates and inside the body at a certain temperature, right? Yeah. Which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting and cool. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we use a prebiotic along with that probiotic has a bigger, stronger effect. So that's uh, something that the use the mother should understand as well, or the father. Well, we use prebiotic fiber in both products. Right. So the probiotic won't work by itself. I mean, there are uh, research-backed studies that it that it's highly eff- efficacious. Efficacious. Yeah, yeah. But in our case, there's even more studies, when you combine that with prebiotic, it actually works 15, 20 times more effectively on the gut. I did not know that. That's that, that's good to hear. And then we are Clean Label Project Verify, which is pretty cool. They test us for heavy metals. They test us for a whole bunch of pesticides. And it's a really in-depth panel. So we've submitted our product to the Clean Label Project and we received their Purity Award, which is important. You got to be really careful when you're serving food to small, precious bodies that we are with toddlers, they take it very seriously. It's not like, no no, no level of pesticide is okay, especially for a, a 35 kilogram body. So that's why we're organic, clean label, project verified, heavy metals tested, tested for pesticides, all that. So and they, they, I guess to wrap it up, the organic process has been interesting. I'm going to have somebody come inspect where I'm, I'm sitting 
have to actually come to my house. I'm like, dude, Tally Foods is the headquarters, you know, is, is here. And they're going to have to come and like, look at my computer files. It's crazy to make sure that I have all of the organic files organized appropriately. But that's the last step. We're organic certified. Oh, I, I thought you were going to tell me that they're going to swab you and make sure you're organically certified <laughs> as well. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised at this point. The level of intensity it is is no joke. But our folks that we use, one cert who certified us organic is super nice. And they brought us to the process, thanks to John, for dealing with a lot of that. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I'm really happy that we're organic certified. And then, yeah, we're going to raise some money here in the next month and produce this in October as the plan and get it onto the website and get the two packs out the door. We have a lot of pre-orders already for the product and a lot of interest in it. So we know it can do well. We're sampling out to consumers now to get feedback. Like, is it, could it be more sweet or like what have you, or is the clumping an issue? And we'll see what consumers say. So. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, you have to see what the consumers say. Agreed. Yeah, you can't. Knee-jerk reactions are, are helpful. Well, it was nice seeing both of you guys. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Kyle. You too. We'll talk to you all soon.